Good morning slash evening. Welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China-Africa podcast. I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and I am joined by our co-host, Yiting Wang, our resident China sustainability specialist. Our usual co-host, Lena Benabdella, is joining us today, but in another capacity. Yiting, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? Pretty good. I heard you went skiing recently. <laughs> yes, this time it's in Beijing, and then more parts of my body hates me. <laughs> so if you sound pain during this podcast, we know why. <laughs> yep. Okay. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duru, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. President Xi Jinping's first overseas trip of 2016 was to Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Iran. Between January 19 and 24, Xi visited each country and signed dozens of agreements worth billions of dollars. Although, as is always the case with China-Africa numbers, those amounts should be taken with a grain of salt. Still, it was a deaf diplomatic trip to visit both Saudi Arabia and Iran, considering they are mortal enemies. In addition, Xi's visit to Egypt was significant. The country is supposed to be a major artery for one belt, one road, and also Egypt was the first African country to recognize China in 1956. So Chinese President Xi and Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi attended a celebration marking the 60th anniversary of the diplomatic recognition at the opening ceremony of the Sino-Egyptian Culture Year in 2016 at the Luxor Temple on January 21, 2016. To talk about Xi's visit and China-Middle East relations more broadly, we have on this episode Lena Benabdala, a PhD candidate at the Department of Political Science and Center of African Studies at the University of Florida, whose research looks into the dynamics of vocational trainings and power diffusion in China-Africa relations, and she is also the proud co-host of the Cowboys and Rice podcast. We. Also have Ivana Hu, who was on a pod with us about a year or two ago, as she was CEO of G Marifa in Nairobi, but has moved on to new projects and a new base in Amman, Jordan. She is a technologist specializing in mobile tech platforms and digital strategies, having done on-the-ground implementation conflict zones, including stints in Afghanistan and Iraq, where she saw firsthand Chinese interests in those countries. Ivana and Lena, welcome back to the pod. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Winslow. And yes, this is one of the few times we are basing this directly off current events. And as always, we're a little bit late. But I am hesitant to even try speaking about China Middle East relations, as I'm so ignorant of the topic. And also, there are a lot of countries in the region that. We will really not cover. For the best that you can do, please tell the audience about the countries you know best and how they are currently dealing with China. And I will choose Ivana to speak first. Okay, great.、Um, so before I answer that question, I just want to sort of define what Middle East is.、Um, you know, it, it 
in talking about the relations with China as well as for this podcast, in my opinion, I think when we say the Middle East, um, we also sort of clump in North African countries as well as a few of the Central Asian countries, um, in particular Afghanistan. So the countries that I know best um, are Afghanistan, Jordan, Lebanon, and Tunisia. Um, and I'll go a little bit into um, details about their respective relations with China. So for Afghanistan, China has really taken a stance and a part of it um, is because of the Silk Road initiatives and a few of the other economic deals that are in the in the region. Um, currently, China holds uh, rights to some of the biggest oil fields as well as the mineral fields in Afghanistan. However, they these fields have not been put to use um, in their best potential simply because of the security problems, um, especially with the Taliban. And so uh, two weeks ago, there were talks um, in Qatar, uh, peace talks with the Taliban. And um, interestingly, it, it was one of the first times that China has ever participated in such a high-level conversation. Um, and so the players were the U.S., China, and the Taliban. And that has never really happened before. Um, and so we kind of see this theme of China getting not only um, getting into the Middle East, not only because of the economic reasons, but also because of security. And it does make sense, right? Because in order for a lot of their economic interests to come to fu- to um, to fruition, they have to be concerned about the international security aspect. And so China is working a lot more um, with international um, and multilateral governments on security, especially in counterterrorism. The second part to that is also because of the Uyghur problems for China. A lot of Uyghurs um, have escaped to Afghanistan where they get trained and and then they go back to China. And clearly that poses as a domestic issue as well. Um, in the in the it, it's not in the last issue of Dabiq, but it was in the one previous to that, as well as in the Inspire magazine, both of which are terrorist magazines. Um, Dabiq is run by ISIS and Inspire is an English magazine co- um, produced by Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And in both, they highlighted the um, the Uyghur problem. Um, there is a huge spread in the Inspire magazine. I think it ran for four or five pages about um, about you know their plight and how they um, how the Arabs um, and the and true Muslims have to help the Uyghurs um, in their in their fight against the communists. That is probably not something the Chinese government wants to hear. No. <laughs> And maybe for the listeners um, who might not be familiar with the new Silk uh, Road Initiative, um, uh, just you know to, f- to uh, flag it out, it's a, a grant scheme um, that the President Xi Jinping had launched uh, about two years ago that sort of tries to re- uh, revive the, the ancient uh, trade routes connecting China um, with uh, Europe via Central Asia. Um, and that that's more of the overland route. And there's also the Maritime Silk Road that um, essentially also goes through Southeast Asia and, and, and all the way to East Africa and, and eventually to um, Europe as well. So in either case, um, Central Central Asia um, and the Middle East is a, quite a strategic um, connecting point for the One Belt, One Road or the 
Neo Silk Road Initiative. Thank you for the introduction that I carelessly left out of the intro of this pod. Yes, what Eating said. So yeah, I guess it makes sense. Um, you know uh, that Afghanistan and 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 Iran and and uh, several Middle East countries now just become much more important um, for both economic and political reasons for China. So One Belt One Road has six corridors currently right now, and one of the corridors does I, does run through Afghanistan, if I recall correctly, and. Mm-hmm. Ivana, if you have been in Afghanistan in the past three years, have you seen any projects that look like it might eventually be a One Belt, One Road project? So a road is being built. It might not be One Belt, One Road at the time, but retroactively they say, oh, yeah, this is this is going to be part of One Belt, One Road. Did you see anything like that while, while you were there? I have not seen it. However, a lot of people... <clears throat> talking about it um the places that i um primarily was in um they're not the safest places um, i was in the south in kandahar province as well as in kabul um and so you definitely see the presence of the chinese however compared to you know what i saw in iraq um it, it doesn't even measure up um i think on my flight from uh, Istanbul to Iraq, it was half filled with um, with with Chinese people, and I was quite shocked because I did not expect so many Chinese people to be in a war zone, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and a lot of them were there because of the minerals and the oil. And Iraqis have gotten quite good at and 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 they're more sophisticated in their understanding of um, of the Chinese people and the Chinese culture. And to echo that, Ivana, there is um, this uh, really cool map um, put out by the New York Times where it sort of shows China's share of foreign investments between 2005 and 2013. And it also like goes by um, just like a color code just mm-hmm. to show, you know, risky countries and, you know, all the way to safe countries. And you look at China's share of foreign investment in Afghanistan is 79%. Um, yeah. So it is really a huge uh, presence of foreign investment from China there. I mean, Iraq is a little bit less. It's like 38% on this map, but still those are two big figures. Um, Iran gets a little bit less. It's like a 13%, um, you know, of China's foreign investment. But still, I mean, it just shows the importance, you know, of these countries to China. I mean, with or without the uh, One Belt, One Road um, but uh, but regarding One Belt, One Road, is it really, like, how much of it is going to actually be a road? I mean, is it actually going to be, um, like, physically roads that you're going to see between countries? Or is it just, you know, this concept of, you know, trade uh, and, and different kind of countries that along the line uh, would foster these... Uh, trade uh, uh, agreements with China. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, if how much of it we're going to actually see. Hopefully, when we have a month-long look at One Belt, One Road, we can tackle this question more in depth. But so far, as someone yeah. who's been educated himself on this, this topic, so there's a lot of misunderstandings about One Belt, One Road, and I'm not 
totally sure I have 100% grasp on it, but essentially it's not just physical roads or, or, or port upgrades. There's mm -hmm. coal and, and, and electricity and anything that, that generates power for certain projects. There's also customs harmonization. I, I've seen sort of talk that basically from China westward, the process by which Chinese goods go overseas, China wants them not to be held up in customs or in border crossings for a long time. And that's something that a lot of people don't really talk that much about. Yeah. The thing is, just a lot of uh, linear, inf I mean, it's sort of connectivity in its broadest sense, right? So it's a lot of linear infrastructure, including railroads and power lines and, and physical roads, um, but also telecommunication, um, where China is a, a very strong, emerging to be a very strong actor. And I think that's also where mm -hmm. Ivana's expertise comes in. And maybe she could share more about uh, these these areas of development as well. Um, yeah, but, and then also mm -hmm. with the maritime Silk Road, there's going to be a lot, you know, a lot of ports. There are already a lot of ports planned. Um, and actually just recently, right, five days after President Xi's visit to Iran, the, um, um, the train route between Yiwu, uh, a southern um, Chinese city, which is like the capital of, small manufacturing goods um, connecting all the way to Tehran um, has uh, started running. So it's just a freight train um, rail, but yeah, it, it apparently can, uh, so anything can just take uh, 14 days to get from Yiwu, southern China, all the way to Tehran. Wow. So mm -hmm. It's a very flexible project and it has a lot of moving parts. So, Ivana, can you talk to us a little bit more about your experiences in Iraq and, if you want, Jordan, Lebanon, and Tunisia? Hopefully Tunisia, at least. Yeah, I can definitely touch upon Tunisia. Um, so, I mean, for Iraq, there, I mean, like, I know it more from the, you know, ethnography sense um, and, the, and the cultural sense than the actual economic sense. Um, but, you know, when, when we were there, people... Um, even in the Kurdish parts of Iraq, you could see a pretty heavy Chinese presence. Um, and they've, and they've definitely built a lot of the roads. Um, it's primarily them and Turkey in Northern Iraq. Um, for Tunisia, it's, a, uh, sorry, for, um, and this is very different, um, I think from a lot of other countries in the Levant region, which includes, uh, Jordan, Lebanon, the Palestinian territories, et cetera. Um, because, so for example, in Jordan, um, Jordan historically has had um, very close ties with Japan. And so um, a lot of the construction is actually done by, uh, by Japanese com um, companies. And you can also see the evidence of the friendship between those two countries, you know, through just through the simple fact that there's one main highway that runs from the capital of, of Jordan, Amman, which is um, up north to the south. Um, port city of Aqaba and that highway is called the King Hussein um, Highway but it's also called the Jordan Japan Friendship Highway and so China has been um, trying to get into Jordan um, and they've done so pretty successfully at this point but um, they are battling you know Japan and um, and the quality of their construction work is pretty questionable by the Jordanians as well as the Jordanian government 
Um, Jordan's also a little bit harder for for China to tap into simply because Jordan is such good allies with the U.S. and the West that sometimes under pressure they will um, the Jordanian government will go with you know Japan or a Western way of doing things,、um, especially in development aid.、Uh, Jordan gets I think it's、uh, he gets a third. Uh, the third most,、um, or the the third、um, biggest.、Um, I'm like losing my words right now.、Um, it gets it gets、um, significant amount of funding from the U.S. I think it's right after Pakistan and Israel,、um, and so they don't want to upset the West.、Um, and then in Tunisia, so the. The interesting part about Tunisia is that even though、um, the relationship between the two countries are quite old,、um, China hasn't done too much in Tunisia.、Um, it, they they've just started to put more money into it. But so, for example, they've only given out、um, you know、um, around a hundred and thirty million dollars in loans, and that's. Basically, like an accounting error for for the Chinese government,、um, and and a, and a big reason for that is because when the Tunisian revolution happened, China actually censored、um, what was happening in China in, or in Tunisia、um, in in the in in the Chinese、um, block sphere and all that stuff because they didn't want that. You know that revolution to actually go over、um, or transfer over to China,、um, and at the same time, there's sort of this、um, information war that they're having to really broadcast how good the Chinese policies are in the MENA region.、Um, I mean, Tunisia it was a French colony, and so it's very close to、uh, Germany. Um, and France, and a lot of their citizens actually have dual citizenship, and so they they're also a little bit hesitant、um, in terms of just trying not to upset their trading partners in Europe.、Um, but at the same time, they also recognize that China is this really big force that needs to be dealt with,、um, and so they're slowly making the inroads、um, on that right now. But the cool part is、um, Tunisia Air, which is their, which is their、um, national airline,、um, just decided to fly to China directly、uh, more than twenty-one、uh, times per per week, which is phenomenal because there's only like ten million people in Tunisia.、Um, but the, but China does see Tunisia as a very strategically located.、Um, Country and so, in order for them to do their work in Algeria and Morocco, they have to make sure that Tunisia is also stable. That that's very interesting. If you、uh, look at、um, the case of China-Algeria relations, you see you see parallels、uh, closer to the case of Tunisia than you do, you know, in the case of the Middle East.、Um, and The reason I I don't know you know、um, how how else to think about this but um, but uh, but mostly it has been kind of a relationship of、um, you know、uh, energy security economics infrastructure building、uh, you don't see a whole lot of、uh, communication technology like lately it has kind of started a bit but、mm. definitely not so much on. The investment side. I mean, China does not invest that much、uh, in North Africa. I mean, not in Tunisia or Algeria.、Um, 
In Algeria, I think the relations are a bit different from Tunisia in the sense that Algeria has a lot of oil and natural gas. And so, you know, naturally, those that does two things. First of all, it attracts Chinese companies um, to, uh, you know, buy natural resources. But also at the same time, it gives the government like a lot of uh, sort of funding and funds to uh, to execute projects. And so this is another capacity in which... Uh, Chinese companies have been active in Algeria. It's in, in executing yeah. these infrastructure projects. Uh, there was this big, huge uh, kind of mega project of uh, building a, a, motor, a highway, like east-west highway that connects basically Algeria's borders from Morocco all the way to Tunisia. And that was a one major project um, <clears throat> contracted. <clears throat> I think over a third of it was contracted to China. And the rest was contracted to a Japanese consortium. And um, yeah, and th that's basically the capacity in which you see China present in Algeria. You don't see any Confucius Institutes, for instance. You don't see the cultural uh, connection there, which you do see, you know, quite a bit more, you know, in Egypt or, or you know, um, uh, more towards sort of the, 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 the Middle East, um, you know, region. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Um, and I don't know if uh, North Africa being sort of a francophone area does, you know, make a difference there in, in, in the, you know, with respect to the cultural uh, relations. But it definitely you do see, um, you know, these differences um, with Morocco. It's a different story. I, I get um, like Morocco does not necessarily have that energy to, um focused relations with China, they're trying to get on the investment. Um, so there was this uh, big um, entrepreneurship uh, summit that was held in Morocco in, yeah. in November. The um, And, and, and uh, Morocco is trying to really, um, you know, uh, situate itself strategically as this uh, connecting point between, you know, the Mediterranean, the... Um, Atlantic and uh, you know and so it, it, it's trying to uh, strategically attract Chinese investments in that sense. Yeah, I think what's really interesting um, about China Chinese policy in North African countries, um, and one thing I forgot to uh, mention is that China does um, uh, deal significantly with the phosphate fertilizer industry in Tunisia, um, and so that's you know one of the primary reasons why they're there. But in general. Um, the I think the party line is that you know North Africa is is unstable and so we shouldn't be there. But mm. it, that's really interesting because if you think about it, like China's in Libya and China's in South Sudan and all these like other countries around the North African region um, that are a lot less secure than the mm -hmm. African countries that Lena I just mentioned. Um, and so I wonder if there's like an ulterior geopolitical like motive that we're mm -hmm. not aware of or have not thought about. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that I'm really curious about. If China is shying away from Tunisia or Algeria because of the, the Arab Spring or Jasmine Revolution, then why is China dealing with Egypt at all? If, right. If it's a matter of they're not significant in terms of resources, well, China deals with a lot of African countries that don't have a lot of resources. Ethiopia and, and Rwanda come to mind. Mm -hmm. And the fact that China has very different interactions with with North African countries, it is significant, and I can't quite figure out why. It, 
Libya is important insofar as the evacuation of 30,000 plus Chinese personnel after the, the fall of Gaddafi is one of the most significant China-Africa events ever. And a lot of folks um, outside the sphere don't understand it, but essentially it showed that it showed the Chinese government doesn't know how many Chinese people are abroad in any country at any given time, and that China is ultimately responsible for what happens to them on a massive scale. And China totally had to rethink how it approached security and uh, continental Africa mm-hmm. because of Libya. And I'm, I'm interested mm-hmm. to see how that plays out in, in some of these neighboring countries. Well, I can speak to the case of, um, definitely the case of Algeria in the sense of trying to answer the question why there hasn't been more presence of Chinese investments uh, in the country. And there are several reasons. I mean, some you mentioned, but uh, some that, 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 that um, mainly the, you know, the uh, cost of living in Algeria is pretty high. Um, you know, labor is expensive. Um, and uh, the country does have, you know, the basic infrastructure. And so the relationship is not one such that there's natural resources, you take them and, 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 and in return you build, you know, basic infrastructure. Uh, it's not that way because there already is a lot of infrastructure. So basically the government in Algeria sees itself in a position to negotiate terms of how things are going to be built. And so there's competition, you know, usually these projects are open to a dozen, you know, different bidders. Um, and then when it comes to, when it comes to Chinese investments, you see that, uh, there's also a, Algeria is also a, kind of a developmentalist state in the sense that the government has a strict kind of a presence. It has a, a, a um, restricted um, uh, fiscal policies, investment policies, and so it's not easily accessed by foreign investments, whether it's Chinese or others. Uh, and so there, there's been a few cases where FAO, the Chinese enterprise kind of wanted to open a line of assembly, you know, in Algeria. And I think it was back in 2011. One of the main reasons why that never came to fruition was basically it would have costed by the time, you know, the product is finished, it just would be extremely expensive. Um, And that's because labor is expensive, um, different, you know, um, bureaucratic, you know, hurdles to jump through. And by the time the product is finished, it's just not worth it. And so even talks about having special economic zones didn't work because of those things. Um, and, uh, and so I don't think it's much, uh, kind of related to, you know, historical relations or, you know, because if you think about it, Algeria and China do have, uh, amazingly, you know, strong, historical relations is just that it does not necessarily translate into present time kind of, you know, investment opportunities. Um, and I think it's because of these, you know, issues. I don't know how that, you know, compares to Ivana's experience to, in other countries, um, but that's my sense of the way it is in Algeria. Uh, Lena, can I interject? Can you give us a little bit of the historical context? Well, it, it, it is strong because actually uh, uh, China has 
been in the past uh, known for sort of uh, its support to anti-revolution to anti-colonial revolutionary movements. And so China had actually even recognized the temporary um, government of Algeria before independence in 62. Uh, and mm. it had also sent medical teams. It had sent armaments and weapons. And so the, um, the Maoist kind of China was uh, a, a regime that uh, openly and actively supported all kinds of all um, anti colonial and anti-imperial um, revolutionary movements. And, uh, you know, the FLN uh, uh, was uh, definitely recognizing, you know, China's uh, efforts to support the, uh, the uh, war of independence. Um, you know, post-independence, uh, obviously, um, China uh, was a, wanted to be kind of this, you know, uh, leader of the developing world, kind of, you know, be... Um, yeah, a, a sort of a, a, a power in, in, in its own right vis-a-vis -vis these newly independent countries. And Algeria was no different. So there were really strong um, ideological relations. Uh, the Algerian government was the declared socialist government. And so that was lucrative and kind of uh, uh, ideologically in line with, um, with China of the 60s and the 70s. Uh, and so the relations uh, there were very strong, right? Um, but then, uh, economically speaking, uh, the, the, the ties have not picked up until the, the, the early 2000s. Um, and uh, I mean, it's I don't know how that compares to other places, but in terms of uh, historical relations, I mean, China and Algeria do have a very kind of strong solidarity base to start from, except that it. You know, if you look at it now, we did not necessarily translate into strong economic relations uh, today. So, thank you. That that was thank you. That was fascinating. I Ivana, do you want to say anything about Tunisian history with China? Uh, yeah. So it's it was also around the same time that um, Tunisia and China started their diplomatic. Um, recognition of each other's in 19 was the late 1950s or early 1960s. Um, and at the time it was so primarily based on phosphate fertilizers. Um, slowly though, that sort of, um, I mean, so when, when Ben Ali was in, where, when Bourguiba was in power and then, and then Ben Ali, um, China basically, you know, they had friendly relationships um, and China wasn't too keen when the Arab revolution happened and, um, and Ben Ali got kicked out. Um, but so like, so there's a huge sort of gap, right? Cause they've all, they've always been very friendly and China would um, once in a while invest in some kind of a construction um, project where we give Tunisia um, a couple, you know, twenty, thirty million dollars in 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 development, any loans and all that stuff, but nothing really big um, happened until a couple years ago when um, when they when the Chinese government you know decided that maybe we should put in slightly more resources in, into into Tunisia than before. Um, and so, so one example of that is that um, there, 
Uh, China has invested quite a lot in the healthcare sector as well. Um, so they're helping to build a university hospital in Sfax, which is one of the main cities in South Tunisia. Um, and um, they just created a new joint venture in chemical fertilizer um, company. And then um, re- most recently, the U.S. has given to or sorry, China has given Tunisia around $4.8 million in grant for military procurement, uh, which is a very nice way of saying that they're helping them with the counterterrorism effort. Um, <laughs> so that's what it means. Yeah. <laughs> so um, based on a lot of the speeches that have been given around Sino-Tunisian uh, relations, it seems like China wants to actually invest uh, more. Um, and one thing that Tunisia has asked for is a lot more foreign investment capital. So when I was doing business in Tunisia, it's incredibly hard to move Tunisia money out and you get taxed like crazy. And so China is really trying to, China along with a lot of other countries, um, are trying to push Tunisia to change their rules around FDI and doing business um, so that it's a bit more lucrative for other, you know, for, for these countries. Um, so yeah, so one, I mean, the biggest constraint is something I mentioned before is really the French is the relationship with the French and the fact that the French, um, does want to curtail, uh, China's role in Tunisia. Um, and so, you know, this sort of becomes a political gamut as well. Um, if for example, China wants something from, from France, um, Tunisia does come on to the table sometimes as a leverage. That's, that's really interesting. And for for our listeners' sake, could you clarify in terms of Sino-Tunisia relations? Tunisia wants actual FDI. They're not looking for loans, not even looking for even concessional loans. They want actual FDI, which is exactly. um, which China doesn't invest nearly as much in Africa as people think. China loans a lot or finances a lot or gives export credits. And how does France feel about Tunisia's FDI restrictions? Um, so that's a really tricky question, right? Because if we're going to get into the nitty gritty of, you know, taxation policies, um, a lot. So Tunisia is primarily run, I think, for as similar to a lot of countries in the region. Um, they're run by a handful of very powerful families. A lot of these families have dual French and Tunisian citizenship. So one way to get around the very strict financial regulations um, in Tunisia is to create an offshore account or create an offshore company um, under your French passport. Um, So I don't, so that benefits France, but that kind of does not really benefit Tunisia and everyone does it. Right. So I don't um, I don't actually know how the French think about that. I think like to them, it's 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 nice that someone's boosting up their GDP. Um, but at the same time, they are French citizens. If that makes any sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Thank you for clarifying. And Lena and Ivana, I'm wondering, um, what do you think, um, you know, after sort of um a few years, a few decades of sort of a, of a lesser level of activity. What gives China the impetus to enter the Middle East right now? Um, 
you know, why why is is such a good window of time, and what should we be expecting in terms of level of investment, and, and maybe even a higher level of diversification of investment in the broader Middle East region. I know after the initial three country visits at the beginning of this year. Ivana, do you want to take this first? Um, do you want to take it first? Right. Um, well, I think in terms of expectations of what's... Uh, well, first of all, your first question was, why now, uh, essentially? Um, and I think for a number of reasons, we have not talked a lot about what these countries and governments want. So we've talked about the Chinese perspective and what it makes you know, what kind of uh, strategic interests would China have in these regions, but not uh, so much what uh, leaders of these uh, governments want um, uh, to see happen. And, and part, of the, uh, part of the reason why you see interest in China now, uh, you know, from Saudi, Egypt, Iran, or other countries that Xi Jinping has not yet visited, is 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 this um, uh, first of all the uh, oil prices which have uh, kind of uh, gone down to a very low level uh, hurting the economies of a lot of these countries and there is a sense of a wake up call that you know um, these economies will have to start thinking about uh, other ways of you know making money and generating money. Uh, and you get the sense that, um, you know, Chinese uh, government is investing, you know, $60 billion here, $15 billion there. And so there is. Uh, uh, can, the, I, can I clarify? They're not investing. Most of these are loans. Right. Right. But allocating funds of such big amounts is really what I mean. Uh, and so that becomes an attractive alternative. Right. When. Um, when these governments are looking for other sources of funding that's not conditioned, you know, by different kind of the Washington consensus conditionality or the IMF conditions, then you sort of turn to uh, China for partnerships. Um, so I think to that extent um, that it meshes nicely with China's initiative of the One Belt, One Road. And so I think the timing is, you know, best understood if looked at both sides. And so you don't, it's not just the fact that Obor is on the, on the planning, but it's also the fact that these Middle East governments are looking for an alternative, uh, are looking for other ways of generating uh, economic funding opportunities for jobs. And that's what's going to keep their legitimacy in power. That's what's going to keep, you know, young people from writing in the streets and protesters and all kinds of uh, sort of security, you know, uh, uh, issues. And so oil prices are down. People are protesting in Algeria last week, last month, and it's 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 concerning for the government. So the idea is that there is need to be active on the economic front. Um, and so it is to be expected that China is is going to have a, an increasing uh, role in in North Africa and the Middle East region. Um, and where it gets tricky is the security role and how much of it is China is China willing to uh, to be involved really in these geopolitical security counterterrorism. Uh, the sense is that it's not going to be involved in these things in the in the, in the shorter term. Uh, the sense is that it's it's a business relation. 
um, its investments, its loans, infrastructure, construction projects for now, for the shorter term. Um, um, so that's sort of my reading of what to expect of China. More presence, but more economic presence than security presence in the shorter term. I completely agree with Le- with Lena's analysis. Um, I think one thing that we didn't really talk about is the religion aspect, or I mean, we can think of it as pure religious um, fervor in uh, in the region, or we can think of it as you know other things or other interests are masked as religion. But um, one thing that's really interesting is I think China is also. I mean, they've seen how how uh, the Middle East people and the government, I think in these two, I think we should make a distinction between these two because sometimes they have completely different interests and they have very different um, ways of thinking about um, political problems. But um, with these two, I mean, with these two groups, I mean, so China have basically seen how a lot of the Middle Eastern populations um, see, you know, the West, America, Israel um, as infidels, right? But if you think about it, China is essentially godless as well. Um, and that's very much also against Islam. So it's going to be, so they, so they, I think that's why they're a little bit more cautious about actually having boots on the ground um, in terms of the security aspect. Um, however, China did actually um, put in some, they, they, they made some sort of investment where they um, contributed to uh, the international uh, force coalition in Afghanistan. Um, but I think Afghanistan is, is probably the exception. And I'm curious if either of you can speak about OPEC at all and some of the politics involving oil prices, oil production, and what that's doing for Chinese oil companies. I don't really, I'm going to be honest, um, I don't study oil very much, mainly because Jordan doesn't have any oil. Um, So, um, yeah. Okay, that was more of a shot in the dark. Lena? (laughs) Uh, Winslow, I'm not sure I got your question uh, correctly. Oil prices have been really difficult for OPEC to deal with, and they've had to figure out what to do in terms of oil production, which affects some of these prices. So basically, the oil prices that you see now, Mm -hmm. part of it has to do with essentially an oversupply, and OPEC refusing to slow down production because OPEC or at least a few countries in OPEC want to consolidate their market share and sort of squeeze out other countries like Venezuela or Nigeria. Or you. And mm-hmm. so that once oil prices stabilize, they can profit more in, in five years or ten years by having a, a stronger market share. But these OPEC countries, some of these are the, some of them are the same countries that we're talking about right now as uh, Saudi Arabia. So I'm I'm curious as to what you see in terms of that interaction in oil prices, oil production, OPEC, and then how that affects Chinese oil companies because Chinese oil companies, if they got money from a Chinese policy bank to do something in another country and they were going to get paid back in oil at a certain price per barrel. And now that price per barrel is a lot lower than it used to be. Is China trying to mm-hmm. say anything to Saudi Arabia and say, listen, mm-hmm. this is really you hurting know, our boys? 
Well, that's, you know, it's a very good question that you ask, Winslow, and it does not only apply to countries or relations with countries in the Middle East. I mean, you take Angola, you take a number of other countries in Africa, which follow this formula, you know, where you get projects for oil. And that's when it, that's when people are saying that China is running big risks uh, in these countries because, you know, if they don't have what to pay with or if they don't have enough, you know, to pay for these projects, then it's a big risk. Uh, now, in terms of, um, in terms of, uh, I could speak to the case of Algeria. I mean, it, it is a big uh, debate going on, you know, in, in, in the country right now as to what to do in, in with, with the oil prices being so low. Um, and, uh, <laughs> The, some of the solutions that are brought to the table is fracking, for instance. Um, and so you, you're going to see uh, a kind of uh, looking at different ways of making up for the loss in, in, in the oil prices and that those ways are probably not going to be the most environmentally friendly or the most sustainable ones in, in the longer term at all. But, that, but those are things put, put on the table. Um, you know, like stop, you know, using up all the resources, the oil resources right now, look at something else and then come back to it later, you know, when the prices have gone up. I mean, are the prices going to, you know, go up at all? We don't know. Uh, but that also makes Chinese product very expensive. Uh, and, and, you know, these, a lot of these countries, whether they are in North Africa or just in Africa in general, um, import a lot of uh, Chinese goods. And those imports are going to be, um, you know, playing a big role in, in, the, in, the, in, in the economy of these, of these countries. So I, I don't know exactly how that's going to speak to oil companies in China, but I know how that's going to, you know, sort of affect the relations um, in the continent. And thank you so much for that. I neglected to mention our, our listeners, OPEC is the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries. They're basically mm -hmm. oil countries. Mm -hmm. Thank you so, so much for that illuminating answer. This pod has gone on pretty long, and so maybe we can move on to recommendations, if that's okay. Unless you have any final comments. Yeah. No, I'm good. All right, recommendations. Ivana, we will start with yourself. What do you recommend for our listeners? Oh, my. Uh, <laughs> um, honestly, I haven't thought about it. <laughs> Um, What's the best Chinese restaurant in Jordan? You know, there's only like two Chinese restaurants in the entire in 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 Jordan, and neither one of them is particularly great. Um, Iraq, <laughs> Afghanistan. Maybe that's a business opportunity. There yeah, you go. There is a business opportunity, and that would be actual investment. <laughs> Well, there is P. Um, P. F. Chang is everywhere in the Middle East. Um, <laughs> really? Count that. No way. Oh my God! They're in every single country. There's one in Amman. There's a bunch of them in Dubai, Abu Dhabi. Yeah, Kuwait has them. Um, they're all run by Al Shaya Group. So, yep. That's, well, that's I amazing. hope after that plug, P. F. Chang decides to sponsor this podcast. <laughs> P.F. Chang's, the best Chinese food in the Middle East. <laughs> That's amazing. I do like P.F. Chang's, by the way. If P.F. Chang's is listening. I've never been there, so... <laughs> <laughs> you should try it. Lena, what about yourself? 
I think I would like to recommend these maps by New York Times. Um, they are pretty good. I mean, if you just uh, look at, let's see, it's it, these are interactive maps um, that the New York Times uh, put out in July of last year. Uh, I, I can send you a link to them, uh, Winslow, so you can share them on the pod. But um, because there's no way to kind of describe what they look like, but but they are really pretty awesome maps uh, that look at uh, China's investments, uh, pretty much you know in the world in terms of foreign investment. Uh, other maps look at um, you know one of them is called what the world means to China. Another one um, looks at China's regional um, um, interactions in, in, in the South China Sea. Um, I'll, I'll give you a link. Uh, I think that would be the easiest way to do it. But they're pretty cool maps. Wonderful. I very much look forward to seeing them. Eating, what about yourself? Um, I don't have anything in particular, but um, maybe just, um, just the promise that we'll bring more... Um, China and the Belt and the New South Road Initiative and maybe more readings on sort of the more histories of the South Road and um, and and therefore as a way to look into the future. So that's a promise for future pod recommendations. That's a good flip from a recommendation to a promise. <laughs> I support that. And I am going to recommend Africa and the Chinese media, cultural reflections on the African continent. Essentially, the Vitz China Africa Reporting Project is starting a really good initiative of translating Chinese media articles, uh, mostly from, from newspapers, about Africa and translating them from Chinese into English. And on, and on January 29th, Cultural Reflections of the African Continent, I think, is the second in the series. They're great. I tried my hand at this with, with a team of translators to, to do this, and let me tell you, it's really hard, and you should all go on to the site and start reading these things to at least justify the insane amount of work it must have taken to go ahead and do this. And this is just a, a perfect, perfect initiative by one of the best China-Africa internet spaces in the world, and I heartily, heartily recommend that you check it out, and hopefully it, it continues. And before we sign off, how do people find you on the internet? Do you have a website or a Twitter account that you would like to share with us? Um, I have a personal website that basically details my work, but my contact information is on there. It's just my name, um, Ivanahu dot co. What is the advantage of dot co over dot com? You know, I come from the startup background space and co was like the cool thing to do and dot com was seen as like you know something you do something you had in 2000 when or right after the dot com um bubble bursted good to know, good to know. maybe i'll <laughs> to try and change my dot com to a dot co lena what about yourself now that you're a guest you can really go to town with how people find you um, I'm on Twitter, uh, Winslow. My Twitter handle is at uh, L-B-E-N-A-B-D-A-L-L-A-H. Uh, I think that's the best way to find me on the internet. And you have one of the best China Africa Twitter accounts, so yes, please follow her now. Thank you. Eating, what if people want to find you? 
Uh, I am on Twitter as well. Um, every now and then, uh, when I get to, um, you know, climb over some sort of war, um, <laughs> it's at um, Dao of the Pool, D A O O H um, T H E P O O H. Very, very good. And yes, when Eating does manage to tweet, it's definitely worth checking out. <laughs> It's just takes sometimes a, a, a while to get in. Can you tweet on your phone by any chance, or it's got to be on a computer? Uh, it's really inconvenient on the phone. I I yep. understood. So you will probably not see any cat pictures. Enough said. <laughs> I myself can be found on cowriesrice.blogspot.com and www.cowriesrice.com, the letter site housing my fledgling China African consultancy. In addition, my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R. And I tweet about China African news, events, opinions, and arcana. And yeah, please follow all of us if you can. But especially Lena and Eating. Oh, come on. Winslow, everybody follows you already, so you don't need that. <laughs> Fine. If you do follow me, follow Lena and Eating as well. Sounds good. And that is about it for today's episode. It is midnight in China, so we got to sign off to let eating go to bed at a reasonable hour. Well, it's already at a reasonable hour. I'll shut up now. We would like to thank Ivana for joining us from Ohio and Lena for joining us from Gainesville. And I'm so happy that, that we managed to have both of you on. We'd also like to thank African Development Jobs. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Double Twist, and iTunes. We are also teaming up with WTND Community Radio for Macomb, Illinois, to share a podcast. And I've submitted our podcast for the, for the Google Play Music. And I'm going to figure out how to actually get it up. We would also like to thank Mighty Micro Pulse Recordings for composing a theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.